0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, you know a bit about me that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team of coaches and facilitators and speakers We are on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like resilience, leadership, teamwork, emotional intelligence, communication, skills like those as soft actually devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. One of the strong skills that we teach was birthed from my book, and it's called Shift Your Mind. The idea of the book and the idea of Shift Your Mind is that your mindset for preparation actually needs to be different than your mindset for performance. And I thought the idea and the framework was so helpful and needed in the work that I did coaching athletes and executives that, heck, I wrote a book about it. It took me about four years to write. And if you're interested in learning more about the book, you can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase. You can even listen to the book via Audible. So if you're into listening to podcasts, perhaps you'll enjoy listening to the book. You do get my voice. Some people have asked if it's me and you will get my voice. For better or for worse, it will be me. Also, if you're interested in bulk orders, you can contact me and you can reach out. I'll get my email in a little bit. And there are a lot of teams and organizations that have bought bulk orders for their team, so feel free to do that as well. Thanks to all of you who have purchased already. I can't tell you how much it means to me. I'm still overwhelmed by the response that I continue to get from people who are shifting their mind. Additionally, I run an accelerator program, which involves one-on-one coaching, so I get in there, I work with you, and I help you figure out what do you need to perform better, to lead better, and to show up the way that you want to show up. So the accelerator is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our next accelerator launches in July. I have limited spots still available, and I love coaching these people and then bringing them together via a retreat and via group Zoom calls. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me at brian at Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. And heck, I'd love to hear from you regardless. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations and want to chat and connect, feel free to email me. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous guests, we'd be so grateful if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. I can't tell you how many people have found us because of iTunes reviews, and they've even signed up for executive coaching with me because of the podcast. So thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. When Tamsen Webster and I started to chat, I felt like this is somebody that I would want in my corner 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I could tell immediately that she was intentional with how she shows up, she's intentional with her presence, and she's really, really thoughtful about how she serves other people. And she spent the last 20 years helping experts drive action from their ideas. And if you've ever been around me, and my friends make fun of me all the time because I am an idea person. I'm constantly coming up with ideas and I find it difficult to figure out which ideas to go towards, which ones to let go. And so someone like Tamsin is needed, at least for me, And I'm sure for yourself as well. So what does she do? She's part message strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator, which she's going to get into in this conversation. And her work focuses on how to find and build the stories for partners, investors, clients and customers to get clear on the stories that they tell themselves and the stories that they tell others. Campson honed her expertise through work in and for major companies and organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as with startups that represent the next wave of innovation in life science, biotech, climate tech, fintech, and pharma. And I think what I appreciate most about Tamsin is there's no question that she's brilliant. There's no question that the people that she serves at Harvard and MIT and people that are making these TED Talks and breaking down incredible research. But there, there needs to be someone like Tamsin that can translate, that can make the complex simple. And I think Tamsin really understands how people digest information so they can learn and create action and change and evolve and grow as a result of brilliant research, as a result of brilliant ideas. So this conversation is about Tamsin, her ability, what she's learned, what she's gleaned, and how you can take the brilliant idea that you have and make sure that it's digestible for yourself and most importantly also for those around you, she has a new book out called "Find Your Red Thread," which is the subtitle is "Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible." So, without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Tamson Webster. Tamson, really excited to have you on the podcast. You have been recommended by multiple past podcast guests, so you have that going for you. No pressure. No pressure nice. to start this okay. off. Okay. <laughs> But <laughs> Neen James was the last one. Mm, love her. You have to have her. And you said you love her. I can't imagine anybody that does not love Neen. She is very lovable. That's probably the right word to describe Neen. And
1: brilliant. Oh, she is she is one of the smartest people I know. And I think that anybody who was like, oh, really? Like you just, you just haven't been paying enough attention because she she is a brilliant person. Um, and, and just so generous of heart. And she is one of my favorite people. She's my weekly accountability partner. Uh, she's why I get things done (laughs) every week. Um, and I, I just adore her.
0: Well, her action and her follow through with heart, that combination, Mm -hmm. it's just hard to beat when you come from the heart and you're genuine and you actually do what you say you're going to do. a lot of people don't do those things. Um, so props to Neen. She actually sparked something for me. She sent me a, a gratitude note uh, at one point. And then that led me at Thanksgiving to send like 250 videos to people. And, well, that's, that's, oh, that's, that's, oh,
1: did she know that? She'd be so thrilled to know that. I think
0: I, that. I think I told her. Um, really? And, and so, and, and not to get too morbid, but one of those people actually passed from COVID. And oh, no. so it's just a reminder that, hey, like, I felt good that I sent him that message. And then he actually said, I'm going to send more of these out in the universe. So we could talk about me and the rest of the podcast, but, <laughs> about me. but this is about you. I'm happy to. Okay. <laughs> All right, fine. Let's talk about me. So I'd love to learn more about you. And I'd love to start just to get a sense of who you are, how you came to be you. Mm-hmm. Give me a sense of your childhood, your upbringing. What was life for you as, as a kid?
1: Uh, it was... Unusual in certain ways, I think, um, but totally normal in others. So my my father was in the navy, so he was not around a huge amount, uh, and that meant that I had this amazing powerhouse role model m- role model of a mother, um, who also happens to be a doctoral he has a doctorate in anthropology. So you get these you know two people who just really love people and the world and are super curious about it. Um, And at the same time, we're incredible models for independence. Um, And so I think that really shapes a lot of my experience. I can look back now and see a lot of what I do, how it had its roots there. Uh, That's helped by the fact that my sister is also a storyteller. So that kind of reinforces this belief that something about how we were raised um, does that. She's actually, she's a, she's like, she's like, She's like the, she's the real storyteller. She's, she's legit. She's, she's won an Emmy and two Writers Guilds Awards and she's Emmy nominated for her own work. She's got, you know, on-screen credit for movies and things like that. But I think there's something to be said about a family that produces two progeny that are as focused on, on storytelling and understanding how to capture and shift the human experience as the two of us are
0: why why do you think you both are obsessed with stories
1: so um (laughs) there's probably polite ways (laughs) for reasons for that and others um i would say that a lot of it has to do with our uh, the kind of the transient lifestyle of a military family uh you are um and plus we're both JetX, so we're both you know we're both latchkey kids like so your know, dad was traveling and when he wasn't you know on active duty he had a job that was out of out of town so he was really only around on the weekends my mother's like working full-time so she's not around a lot um modeling one thing right but my sister and i ended up being both of us i think very emotionally independent that's how i'd like to describe it and uh, when you move around a lot, and she moved around, my sister moved around a lot more than I did because she was older than I uh, was and am, um, that didn't magically shift somehow. Like we are still in fact four years apart. That would be uh, I know, what? <laughs> how did that happen? Um, you, you know, that independence translates into needing to figure out very quickly in very in kind of any situation, how to make the situation work for you. Um, and so, yeah, I can't speak fully for my sister, but my experience was, was, you know, the way I think that translated was, you know, I, thanks to my mother's kind of anthropological nature, I, I kind of watch and observe, I figure out where the power structures are. And then I figure out, okay, here's the, here's the opening. Here's, here's the place where I can contribute, where I can fit, where I can, I can operate here. Um, and you learn to do that pretty quickly when you, you get uprooted and replanted a lot um, for me. A lot of that happened before I was five. Um, you know, we, we moved five times before I was five, uh, so I I had more than my sister the ability to stay in one spot. Um, but I, you know, I am of the opinion that those first five years are pretty formative, um, and again, it's going to be completely influenced by. You, you, my, my mother just has an anthropological outlook. She's just always looking at how people work and why they work that way. Um, and and my father, you know, he's a he was a, he's a retired submarine commander. Um, you know, he's and he's he's like the sole extrovert in our family. You just kind of start to understand what works and what doesn't, and how how the systems of people work. And so I think for my sister, it turned into you know creating alternate worlds. She's, she very much her, her genre is sci-fi and, and and world building. Uh, So I think that's really interesting. Um, And for me, it's, it's much less world building and more, okay, this thing that you are or that you do is different. How do you, how can you most effectively communicate that quickly and powerfully when you may not know everything about the situation and you don't have an opportunity to, because you just, you just got dropped into it. Um, And so, I think that's a lot of where it, it it came from, but who knows? I mean, I've spent a lot of years in therapy, but <laughs> um, that does not always translated into why do I do this work? I can explain a whole bunch of other stuff about myself <laughs> thanks to all those years of therapy, but
0: yeah. You know. you know, one of the interesting things that I was curious about when I was doing research for our conversation today is that you and your husband uh, have a podcast yeah. and share thoughts together and, have almost a performative back and forth personality where the two of you can really riff together and collaborate and and sort of work off each other. I'm curious for you being in partnership, uh, witnessing this independence that your parents had and they did what they had to do to make sure the family had what they needed have you sort of taken a different approach to partnership in an intentional way? Or is it just sort of happened like that? Have you thought a little bit about that?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, mostly because uh, this is this is round two on the whole marriage thing. Um, as Tom would say, like, <laughs> the first one didn't take, um, but it did actually. And and that and just and to to, to toss it off as a joke would be to undersell uh what was an important relationship still is you know the the my ex-husband is is still a very good friend um uh he's a wonderful co-parent um but the relationship I had with him I would say was very much more like what the relationship that my parents had um and when I came to realize that that's what we had grown into that was a moment where I was like I that's I don't want that. Um, it absolutely works for my parents. And this is no judgment on my parents, but it just wasn't what I wanted. I mean, maybe I just read too many romance novels growing up, um, which I did. I've read literally hundreds of them. Think, Don't think any worse of me for that. Um, so when Bridgerton came on Netflix, I'm like, oh, I am down for this. I have read this whole series.
0: But I was, for- <laughs> I was down for Bridgerton too. And I watched every episode. I was just talking about it some one of, one of my buddies, he's like, that show was terrible. I think it was my, no. brother, my brother, actually, I go, what are you talking <laughs> about? But I always could watch like reality TV. And like, I have a soft spot for anything yeah. that tugs on that part of who I am.
1: So um, do I, I mean, one of the things about, so, you know, to wrap up the thing on the, on the relationship. So I, I really wanted something different. And, um, and that's that's what I am lucky enough to have with Tom and that 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 takes a lot of work. Um, and we've worked hard on it this past year uh, amidst the pandemic and all of that. Um, well, when it comes back to these kind of you know stories and romance and that kind of thing, I mean, I have definitely been like the lowbrow person. <laughs> Like my family, my like, yeah, my sister does all these like deep, wonderful art things. I mean, you know, she she's she was one of the executive producers on The Handmaid's Tale for its first four seasons. That's what she won the Emmy and the Writer's Guild awards for. Um, and I'm like, I super love romance novels, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, just give me an, an awesome, happy ending, high concept, which is, I just love the fact that kind of like quote unquote, like popular consumption story. Um, is actually, yeah, which what a lot of people would refer to as lowbrow is actually referred to in the business as high concept. It makes me feel much better about it. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that I love. And, and I think it's, you know, when you're alone growing up and you're, you're spending a lot of that time alone and, and, you know, books in many ways were, were a, a boon companion. Um, and at the time, since I was reading so much in that genre, um, I think it just kind of through osmosis transferred some of these, just these basics of like, how do we as humans make sense of the world? And you can see that repeated in, in movies and stories. And so, you know, I love the fact that my sister has, has this ability and this deep knowledge from the from the practitioner's side of how to take these conventions and turn, turn them. Uh, I was always interested in, how do you make it work? So my sister, was 100% an artist always was an artist she was you know she was deeply into theater and not musical theater i mean like theater theater she went to stanford for theater um, she you know she ended up being a i mean there's a whole other stuff that she's that she ended up doing but i loved the arts and but in high school i had this incredibly clear understanding that i also loved to be employed and that I just didn't have the hustle for it, and and so that really started, I think, in a lot of ways, why I do what I do now, which is, you know, I love people with deep passions who have, you know, that that spend years on their craft or their research or their ideas. I love people like that—artists, musicians, scientists. Uh, you know, just I love it. I respect it. Um, I am—I forgot to be an academic is probably a good way to put it because um, I love academia, but I just, I also love the practicality of like operating in the real world. And so some of it maybe resulted, you know, from the, from how I was brought up or whatever, but, you know, I, I just found over time that that's what I loved help helping to do was like, oh, here's this awesome idea. That's really esoteric and stuck in its ivory tower. Let's bring it down to the street and understand how does it actually work? Because there's people down here that could really benefit from that, but it's so stuck in, you know, academic language and. You know, sensibility that we can't do anything with it. And I love ideas too much for them to get stuck, stuck up in towers.
0: It almost sounds like you like being a bridge. You like- oh gosh.
1: Yes. I think hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I, 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 I have come to calling myself the human Rosetta stone <laughs> um, because I feel like, I mean, and this was true. Particularly true when I went to to undergrad. So you know, I I I was very involved in the arts in, in high school, but I was also the manager of the varsity boys baseball team, and that was something I loved doing as well. Um, you know, I love you know, and so I was like, I love being able to see both worlds. I love being able to 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 travel in both worlds. Um, and when I decided that I didn't want to pursue the arts because I just didn't have the hustle I saw in other people, my sister included. Um, you know, when I went to school, I was like, okay, well, how do I make it easy, easier for other people who have these deep passions while I continue to stay employed? Um, So, you know, even in undergrad, you know, I, I started you by, you know, I applied because I was like, I'm going to go into marketing because in the early nineties, when I was, uh, when I was graduated from high school, um, that was the first of many recessions, but that was one of the ones I've been through where it was like super hard to get hired. So I was like, I'm gonna do marketing because I'm gonna get I'll be hireable, but it's the most creative side of business, so that'll be fun. And after the first year, I hated it.
0: Yeah, um, so where, yeah. where were you at college? Where were you at school? I
1: went to BU, Go Terriers, Boston University.
0: So just back up one step. Your older sister goes to yeah. Stanford, <laughs> she does, yeah, and it, you know, you're, you're watching her go to Stanford. I have to say it. And I grew up on Save by the Bell and I don't, yeah. you know, this will speak generationally, but they, they had this episode where this person was like, Harvard. Like you have to say Harvard yeah. in this, yeah. not even a British <laughs> accent. It's, yeah. it's whatever it is. Yeah. Sta- I feel like I have to do the same thing with Stanford, but your sister is at Stanford and you're watching her sort of have clarity about what she wants and have the desire and the motivation to do whatever it's going to take to get to where she wants to go. I was mad at
1: her though. I'm like, you go to Stanford, and you get a theater degree? Like what the hell?
0: (laughs) Did you, was she a shadow for you? Was she, were you, were, what was it like being her younger sister?
1: Uh, You know, it was, I mean, it was strange because we were there four years between us, but three years in school because uh, two weeks in the first grade they skipped me a grade so I went from kindergarten to second grade um so we were only ever three years why did
0: they why did they do that
1: because apparently I was advanced and so that I had I was already at the second grade level or beyond and everything and I don't know my mother could probably actually tell you the actual story. I don't know if I was misbehaving or I was just clearly bored out of my skull. But yeah, I, my recollection is like two weeks in, they're like, we're just going to bump her to
0: second grade. So you and your sister, though, are independent, doing yes. well academically. Yes. Um, like, seem to be doing well, strong, what, yeah. whatever word you want to associate.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, 100%. Uh, she was definitely the higher performer as sometimes can happen in in younger sister older you know younger older because she almost created such a paragon that I was like I can't I just I don't I don't even want that and I remember when it came to applying for colleges but I had seven legacies to Stanford and I was like I'm not even gonna apply um and I think at the time it was this like you know this braggadocio of saying like I'm not gonna do that I'm not a west coaster like I you know I don't I'm not gonna go where everybody else in my family went, like literally both parents, sister, uh, two uncles, an aunt and a cousin. All went to stanford
0: so academia intelligence you come from from stock that <laughs> has high standards and expectations. i mean that's not a, yeah
1: that's, yeah it's a very academic family yes yeah. i mean not all not all of us ended up in academia actually no like my mother was the one that got the you know got a got a doctorate i mean i i do have to have four degrees but none of them are the <laughs> doctoral level um uh but yes so education was very important because the two generations up um it was very important to them. So my grandparents, both my parent, my father's parents and my mother's parents, um, education. They saw education as a way out and a way up. So you know, my mother grew up in rural Washington state. Um, her parents, I think, finished high school but didn't um, didn't go didn't go from there. And they sent both of their children. So that's my mother and one of my uncles, both of their children to Stanford. Um, you know, and they were, you know, uh, a shopkeeper, uh, you know, who was also a volunteer firefighter, and then my grandmother was a homemaker. I mean, and just, you know, driving her children to success. Um, and my on my father's side, um, academics was also very important. My my grandmother was a, was a teacher, was a was a school teacher, like an elementary school teacher, and my grandfather was a music education teacher. Um, and, and, and professor, like, I mean, he had a, he had a, he had a doctorate in music education. So yeah, it was very, it was very important for us. Um, I mean, academia was important, but I, I had this rebellious streak that, because I didn't quite feel like I fit in my family. And what's interesting is I talked to my sister now that we're both adults, like she didn't either. So it's like, oh, fascinating. Um, and I but just didn't I, want to I do think, that. I yeah. Think I just, just didn't think- want to go.
0: I think of imposter syndrome and a lot of the origins of imposter syndrome came from Harvard, where these kids would get to Harvard and they'd all be like, I don't belong here because yes. they're at Harvard and everybody there has whatever SAT or ACT and GPA. Um, so I think sometimes if you're surrounded by those people, you also don't realize what's getting rubbed off by osmosis or by observation that's true and and
1: having later in my career worked at harvard um which i hear is actually harder to get a job at harvard than it is to like go there at least that's the word on the street or that's what they just tell us to make us feel good about getting (laughs) there um well particularly if you haven't if you haven't gone to harvard to work at harvard without having gone there is tough um apparently i don't know but I, you know, I was just always really practical. Like I said, i like, I loved my sister. I really respected what she could do, but I just could not understand going to Stanford and getting a theater degree. Now, of course she's like way more (laughs) successful than I am. So I'm like, she showed me. Um, But I just, I was just, I was like, I just, I just wanted to do something different. Like my, my whole family considered themselves to be West coasters, but I had spent like the 17 years of my life or the, you know, useful years of my life on the east coast so to me i was definitely an east coaster i have just a different sensibility um and i wanted to do something different i want to do something different than my family had done i want to do something different than all the kids in my in my school so i went to a private high school in in virginia um yeah for virginia beach which surprises people they're like wouldn't have pegged you for a beach girl I'm like no but maybe um, and most of the most of the folks in in my, in my high school. So I think my graduating class was like 125 people. I mean, the vast majority of them went to schools in Virginia, like, so, and they were, they were legacies of the school. And then they would go to a college, they would go to William Mary or UVA or Virginia tech or whatever. And then they would marry somebody else from, from, from my school. And then they would send their kids there. And I'm like, breaking that cycle. So I was like, I'm going to Boston. Like, I was pretty clear that I wanted It wasn't that I was so settled on Boston necessarily. It was just like, I I actually wanted, when I first started to apply, I really wanted a non-traditional college experience. So I applied to places like Bennington and Evergreen State and Hampshire College that didn't really have grades where you could kind of invent your own course of study. Um, But then I had spent, right before my senior year of high school, I spent a summer. uh, So Harvard has the secondary school summer program where like rising seniors go for like three weeks. Um, and I just fell in love with Boston. And then I was like, to hell with that. I'm going to BU. Um, and I ended up to, and I ended up like force, forcing BU to my will. Cause I ended up devising my own course of study. Um, because when I did hate marketing or at least marketing alone after the first year, cause I was looking around at all these other people in the business school. And I'm like, you are not like my arts friends. (laughs) What (laughs) happened? Um, That's when I added the other degree. And I added a degree in American studies. And that's kind of like soothed the balm of my soul um, academically. Um, And but it just yeah, I just because of that, and because I was here, I was at BU. And then at night, I worked like what I did like to pay the bills, was I <laughs> worked. This is a fun story. I worked in the nightclubs, like back when we had them in Boston. I worked in the nightclubs in Boston. So I would like go to school all day. I would study because I was the box office girl or like the one taking the money at the door um, at night. And then I would just like rinse and repeat. And I also volunteered at the Isabella Stewart Gardener Museum. So I just was always in all of these different worlds simultaneously. And so back to the Rosetta Stone thing, I just, I just, and I didn't know how, how how to be anybody but me. So I just learned how to kind of speak all, you know, quote unquote, speak all these languages um, and and just saw that no matter where I look, people were talking about the same things, but they were just using different language they cared about the same things, but they just didn't see how they, the things connected. And I just was sitting at the intersection of all the stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you all have so much to learn from each other. Can we just figure out how to do this? And that's, you know, looking back, I realized that that's kind of what I've been doing with my whole career and my whole life ever since was just like, can we just figure out how to talk to each other about this stuff? Because there is such richness in experiences and insight that is not your own. Um, And there's just wonderful abilities to be able to take all that in. And so, you know, the, the melting pot of my life, I think all kind of fed into that in different ways.
0: There's two words that I want to riff on with you that you sure. said, okay. and since you're very intentional about language and you think about language, I'm just going to go to these two words. The first word was hustle, and mm. you were sort of saying I didn't have the hustle that my sister had, but I go to your website, <laughs> I I see plenty of hustle. Um, it doesn't
1: feel like hustle.
0: I mean, what does it, what does it feel like? We well, yeah, make the distinction. So
1: so, I I think. So to me, the hustle that I saw in, in my sister and, you know, and then I went, like I just, the person that I always picture in my mind when I talk about the people who didn't, like, there's two people who are like, I'm like, I don't have what they have. I don't have this love for their art. Um, wonderful young man, not, you know, he's obviously my age now, but um, Sean Dugan, who was like convinced he was going to be an actor. And James Gippy he like he's he like made it to Broadway he was an HBO series like he he did it like he made it um and the other woman was Sarah Murphy and she was like I'm gonna be a singer but not like pop singer like choral singer um so it's like that takes some commitment to be like I'm gonna go do that and I'm like good for you I cannot I could I didn't have that level of there's to me, that that kind of hustle almost has this, from my perspective, clearly not from theirs, but it felt like martyrdom to the art, right? It felt like that there wasn't a balance of person to art. It was like, I'm gonna subsume all these other things about life because the art is so important. So, and I just love, I just like things in my life a little bit too much to give them all up that way. So
0: I hear obsessiveness and willing to sacrifice and do whatever it yeah. takes to get yes. to where I wanna go. A, it doesn't sound like you had clarity about where the end point was in the same way that they did.
1: True. Other than it was this vague notion of like, I want the things that I I want to figure out how to make all the things that I want work together. I think that would be accurate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Which makes sense, but it's not start on Broadway. No, exactly. It's not
1: like do this. Yeah, I thought, I think, you know, the closest I had to clarity was that I thought I wanted to be an art museum director. (laughs) which I know is truly a thing that most people aspire to as children. Um, But that's I mean, I love the visual arts um, and I thought that that was a right that was a good combination for me because I I liked being in charge. I liked I liked art Um, uh, when I actually started working in the higher levels of art museum. So like I said, I volunteered at a museum and eventually started working there part time when I was in college. But when I actually like worked, worked like at a museum, I realized that that actually was killing my love for it, um, that I couldn't just go and enjoy it as an absorber of the art when I was actually also producing it. Um, and so, the, you know, I kind of left the idea of being an art museum director and and left it all behind. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna focus on... Well, then performing arts became the next place that I went because I worked at a conservatory here in Boston. Um, and, and then that just kind of evolved over time. So. But yeah, I mean, I just, I don't love the, I don't, there is something about the word hustle. I mean, and, you know, cause there's also the, ad, you know, the 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 connotation that's gotten with like Gary Vaynerchuk, um, which is also awesome. That's great. It's just that if you look from the outside and you're like, wow, she like hustles. It's like, I just, I literally can't imagine any other way to be. So I don't like, there's no, to me, like have to hustle. It's just, this is, this is what I need to do to, to get all this stuff out there. And I, I am committed to getting it all out there. And I'm willing to do the work to get it all out there because it's important to me, but it doesn't feel like hustle to me, at least how I define it.
0: It's interesting. A couple of my clients recently have said to me, Brian, you're good at sales. And I started my career in sales and then went into sports psychology and into coaching. And at first, when they would say that to me, I'm like, oh, you know, and it made me feel icky inside. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: You're like, no, sales. Like, what? No.
0: Come on. And then I started to realize, well, what do great salespeople do? They have something that they offer and that they can deliver and help somebody. And that is what great, if you've ever had a great salesperson, 100%. that's what they do. They, they just provide an offering that can support people. And so I've actually flipped that on its head and started to embrace it and say, yeah, you know what? I think I am actually pretty good because I know I have something that's valuable and it's a good offering. So why wouldn't I offer it to people that I care about to help them get better? And I think it's interesting how words carry meaning with us and and like stay with us and, and can impact us. The other word that you said that I was really curious about is you said, my sister is very successful and um, you you know you sort of said she's more, you actually I think said she's more successful than I am and I'm looking at you and once again we go to your website and we see oh well she's got a book coming out by the way the cover looks beautiful I haven't Thank read you. it yet but cover looks fantastic um, you have TED talk you have uh, speaking co- coaching consulting all this stuff going on um, I think you're doing you're doing just fine Tanson. Um, thanks
1: uh, so
0: my question is actually how do you define success? Like, how do you think about success?
1: So I, so let me be clear. I feel like I, I would not, I am as as successful as I want to be right now. I truly am. Like, I'm very, very content with, with what I have achieved and how Um, I'm also very conscious that it is not, uh, you know, on some standards, not all, as you point out, like it's not what other people would would recognize, and and a lot of that's just you know I think it's a classic comparative thing. I mean, people have heard of the Handmaid's Tale, right? Like they have heard of Emmys, like they understand when you say, you know, screenwriter, they're like, oh, I get what that is. Like what she been on? And you say Handmaid's Tale, and they're like, oh my gosh, I love that show. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's awesome. Um, and I, you know, and I, and my. And I've always had a job where my parents are like, Was she, well, <laughs> she, kind of, we're, just ask her. She'll explain what does what she, she do? Does. What does, what she, does do? she do?
0: <laughs> um, and how do you and, answer that? How do you answer that when people ask you that?
1: Uh, it depends on what they already know. But generally my opening line these days is that I'm an English to English translator. What does that mean? It means that I help people translate their ideas from the language of expertise back into the native human language that they used to speak when they weren't such an expert.
0: And what does that actually look like?
1: So that looks like helping people connect back to the ways to talk about their idea and their lives in in language and concepts that anyone would understand um you know once we become expert in something so this is something I've observed now for years and years and years that people are deeply passionate um you in a lot of ways you start to lose your like native human language because you spend so much of your time with those people and that was always so interesting to me like artists stick with artists scientists stick with scientists academics stick with academics and like they don't mix much and they don't mix much with other disciplines, and they don't mix much with the general public. So it's funny, I, there was one time I was having a conversation with one of my TEDx speakers who's a neuroscientist. And um, I mean, thanks to my work, you know, not only with TEDx speakers, but the three years that I spent at Harvard Medical School um, working, I should make it clear I wasn't going to Harvard Medical School. Um, I, I, you know, I quote unquote, speak science. Like I understand a lot of kind of basic principles of science of like, of, and beyond what you're taught in high school, like kind of more advanced principles because of what I had to understand to be able to talk about there. And she was just like, who, she was like, who are you? (laughs) you?" She's like, because her husband's also scientist. She's like, you just, she's like, you, you know, about science and you're curious about it, but you're not a scientist. Like. How does that happen? Um, So I'm very comfortable with kind of having kind of carved out this thing that I do that isn't necessarily easy for other people to explain. Um, You know, the vast majority of my clients come to me because someone else was like, okay, I don't know how to describe what it is that you need, but you just need to talk to Tamsin because that's what she does. Um, And I love that because I'm very clear on what I do and what I do is help people you know, find and articulate the power of their ideas, full stop, Um, but nobody generally talks about their needs that way. They're like, I need to give a talk or this message isn't working or, you know, I want to, I want a different group of people to know about the nature of my work or we need to raise more money or whatever it is. but almost all those things come down to if they're not working, it's because there's something about the power of the idea that's gotten stuck in the, that expert mind and usually in the expert language and hasn't been able to like break through. But it's more than copywriting. It's really just understanding the idea at a fundamental conceptual level.
0: We're going to have fun for the rest of our time. Yeah, Not that right. the first part wasn't fun. <laughs> interesting to learn, but I'm an idea guy through and through. I have... A list of ideas. And my best idea in that is to sell a book of my ideas. That's the best idea. So you'll have to give me your thoughts on that. But um, like, I I, I find coming up with ideas very, not easy, but I come up with a new idea every day. And my friends have to hear about it. And they tell me how much my, how much my idea sucks. And and you're going to teach me how to deal with them. But I think about David Epstein's book Range and when he talks mm-hmm. about the idea and the power of a generalist and having a generalist in the room and how boards should have outsiders. And I know boards do. They they yep. do select people that don't have knowledge of their industry. And one of the things I'm power, I'm I'm very much a believer in is I coach people and then I bring them together. And so once a month, and actually tomorrow we have our monthly accelerator call where I bring together all the people that I've coached and we riff on a theme and a subject. And you have people from government contracting, insurance, real estate, uh, tech, food and beverage. It's like this amalgamation of industries. What a
1: great idea. Yeah. I'm like, I I think I'm like, Oh, may I use that idea, Brian? Because I think that would. Actually...
0: <laughs> I don't have any original ideas; they're all stolen from somewhere.
1: Oh, oh I but, love that! But that's great. Yeah,
0: idea. it's yeah. beautiful because they get to share their perspectives, and there's something, as you said, really valuable of having outsiders share the challenges they're facing in their own way. And actually, athletes are really interested, interesting in this way, and sports coaches too the sports coaches that I work with would much rather sit in a room of C-suite executives than a room of sports coaches. Oh, uh,
1: interesting. Yeah.
0: Because they hear the same sports coaches speak the same language the same way over and over again but they go into a different room with c-suite executives and mm. now they hear it in a completely different way and they get yes. much more original yes. and Kobe Bryant actually was like the king of this he studied mm. the arts he studied music he he asked Oprah questions I mean he was Kobe so he could call up anybody but he would call up Bill Gates or whoever it might be and learn from them and that yes. curiosity which it sounds like you have as well allows you to have a broad range of ideas and concepts and that's where innovation often
1: i find 100 yeah i mean my favorite definition of creativity and i honestly at this point don't know if it's mine or if i picked it up somewhere magpie like along the way um is that my favorite definition of creativity is the ability to make uh unexpected connections between seemingly unconnected ideas or unconnected things um and so when you can kind of like take two things and go like, what about, like, to me, that's, that's creativity. Um, and if you have that definition of creativity, which I do, then to me, the answer, if I ever wanted to be more creative, and there were definitely times in my life where there were certain areas, not that I felt like I needed to be more creative, but there was like certain things that I didn't feel like I was good at. Like there's, I didn't feel like up until I would say five to seven years ago, I was a crap storyteller. Um, I really wasn't good at coming up with like metaphors and analogies and now you cannot stop them coming out of my mouth. Um, but my answer to that was like seemingly unconnected things. I was like, okay, well, I'm just gonna go acquire more things, right? So if I were to come back into this world as an animal, it would a hundred percent be a magpie because I am just absolutely obsessed with, you know, metaphorically shiny things um, I love shiny ideas and I just kind of collect them in a bunch of different ways um, and I just kind of hold on to them and then I and I use them to build stuff um, and so part of my fascination of talking with people who have ideas uh, is that a it adds you know just absolutely it's like absolutely like whatever a magpie's favorite food is like that is it for me I'm like yeah Yes, super sparkly idea. I love it. Um, and it, it, it's just, that's so powerful. And the other thing is, uh, because again, I kind of forgot to keep, stay, or whatever, however you want to put it. Like, I didn't stay in academia because I didn't want to be an academic, but by doing the work that I do, I get, I, I go to school every day on so much different stuff. And it's awesome. And I love that um, because, you know, one client I'll be talking about um, wastewater treatment and another one will be, you know, how do we create better smart cities? And then it'll be about how mitochondria are, you know, very possibly the basis of the elusive mind body connection. And then it'll be like how visual perception affects, affects motivation. And then it will be somebody on like, Hey, I have this kind of different approach to how we get people comfortable with technology. And I'm like, just, yes. yes, just keep talking to me because I love this stuff.
0: But you can also connect dots and figure out how one thing might be relevant to something else and bring it in into that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um it's pattern recognition in my mind. I mean, and so that's also why I just, I, I do my best to absorb as much information from as many different sources as possible, even beyond my clients. I spend easy an hour a day reading, reading articles, reading newspaper, reading um, RSS feeds, blogs, whatever. Um, uh, it's my, it's like part of my morning wake up routine. Honestly, I spend an hour in bed before I ever get out, just kind of like reading the paper, reading my news feeds, just kind of flagging stuff for, to read more later or whatever. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just, I, I love that. And I just, and, and, and that allows me when I'm talking to someone who's like in this area, like studying one area over here, to say, you know what, that reminds me of this other thing completely unrelated on the surface, but I'm like, is it like that? Because my ability to do that say, is it like that? Is it like this? Is it, is it, is this similar? Is part of my process for helping to get down to, okay, what is this idea really about? What does it really do? Um, because ultimately, my process is a process of taking apart an idea so you can understand why your idea works the way that you do. I mean, most people who have an idea are like, it's an awesome idea, but they don't actually know why it's awesome. I mean, they know why it's awesome in terms of the benefits it provides, but they don't know why it's awesome. Much like like when you say to someone, like, do you know how a bike works? And they say, yes. And then you're like, but how does a bike work? And you're like, we push the pedals. Like, why does that work? And they're like, because they're attached to a thing. And like, why does that? And then, and it quickly breaks. The same thing happens with people's ideas where you're like, but why is it the right idea? And a lot of times, actually 99% of the time, the first answer will be some version. If you're listening carefully to like, well, this is the idea that's right because it's the right idea. (laughs) And I'm like, no. And so the vast majority of my work is actually just spotting and fixing circular logic. In people's cases
0: for their ideas. There's so much there to unpack. First of all, there was just a video that got sent around that had all of the introductory head coaches in college basketball, men's college basketball, saying um, what they were saying in their introductory press conference. And they were all saying, we're going to play the right way. And it's just, we're going to play the right way. We're going to play the right way. And all of them are saying, play the right way. What does, and, what does that mean? And nobody knows what that means because the right way for you is different than the right way for me. So I love that you talked about sort of, well, it's the right idea. Um, the other thing that I am so interested in is this idea of building ideas rather than finding ideas. Mm-hmm. So your book, which by the time people listen to this, your book will be out. Congrats, they have said your book. <laughs> um, Whew, glad yeah. we're
1: past that. <laughs>
0: you made it. You made it. So uh by now you probably read Tamson's book. Um but if you haven't, you should you should go read it. Uh, I haven't read it yet, so I'm not going to say that you definitely should read it, but based on this conversation I'm going to say, say you should know def- you- If like
1: <laughs> <laughs> but- I, do, I do find it's a useful approach. And then people tell me that once they, kind of, once they really lock into what it is, like, they can't unhear it. And that to me is the high, highest compliment. They start to look at every message and every idea through this lens. And I'm like, that's awesome because I, would, I, w- I want to equip people with the skills of spotting and strengthening ideas on their own.
0: So give us a little more glimpse into that lens. So the phrase that I saw was the best ideas aren't found, they're built, Um, and then there's like these three components. You need uh, your big idea to have bigger impact. Do you need, uh, is it your next big idea? Or is it a need to adapt your idea across audiences and offerings? I probably butchered that so you can, no, that's all
1: right. but I'll turn um, it up
0: for you to riff on.
1: Sure. So, I mean, to the last point, those three are probably the three most common kinds of questions I get from folks as either um, I, I need to find that next big idea, which is, is, is work that I do less these days. Um, well, I, I do it, but I just charge more for it because it's, it's a, uh, that's, it's, it's work when someone's like, I kind of, I want to, I want to have this outcome, but I don't know how to get there that we can always do that. But that means we have to, we have to build, I'll get to them and build a lot more. Um, a lot of times people are coming to me because they, they already have a big idea and they're trying to pivot in some way. Um, they're trying to figure out how to like, what's the next one? Where do I go from here? Or very common, and I see this a lot with academics. How do I make sense of all of these different initiatives or projects that I have going on, either in my lab or, you know, if it's a it's a kind of a thought leader expert. So I have this talk and this talk and this talk, or I have this book and this book and this book, but I don't really see like how do I when someone says to me like how do they all make sense? You know, like I don't know, <laughs> um, or you know, people are coming to me because um, they need to get it out there in some way, and they're trying to figure out how to. You know, that typically comes up because most often in companies, when they're trying, they're really struggling to operationalize a brand. All right, but let's get to this find and build thing. So this was part of, so it, in the 25 years I've spent at brand and message strategy now, there I've, I've moonlighted a couple times. And I think they're like the two, my two moonlighting jobs did overlap briefly for a little while. Um, but moonlighting job number one, which really taught me a huge amount about how people make the internally driven decisions to, to make permanent changes in thinking and behavior um, was my 13 years as a Weight Watchers leader. Happy to come back to that.
0: Oh, yeah, um, we will. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: And then overlapping that, but the thing that I've done almost continue well, continually, which is different than continuously, but continually over the last eight years um, has been working with TEDx Cambridge and, um, and when I first started there, I was as the executive producer and part of my role, well, my role at that point was to really shepherd the speakers all the way from deciding who the speakers were all the way through to the performance on the stage. So I was helping them through that entire process. I don't still do delivery and performance coaching because there's plenty of people where that is their special gift and I, I do it, but it's not where I love, I mean, I just love, I love me the ideas, as we've already talked about. Um, but what was interesting for me, it was an interesting challenge, because here are these people who have amazing ideas, you know, generally with the, you know, particularly TEDx Cambridge, the caliber of these speakers is very much like TED quality, like big TED quality, you know, they are academics, the, the, the highest proportion of TED speakers comes from the Boston and Cambridge area. Unsurprisingly, because of Harvard. Oh, there it is. And, you know, there you go. That's, um, that's there you go. Ton. MIT yeah. and like the literally three hundred colleges that we have around here. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, but this was a situation where these folks needed to give a talk. They needed to give a talk about their idea. They needed to get it you know they needed to speak to an audience of non-experts i mean an intellectual audience and a very well educated audience but not an expert audience generally like they're not it's not engineers talking to engineers right like so um and they had to do it in 18 minutes or less and i was like bring it on but the challenge for me was that i couldn't just be like well here's your idea (laughs) because i mean that was my role in you know in in my full-time job was like like, how should we promote this company? And I'm like, well, we're going to use this message. And they'd be like, why? And I'm like, because you hired me to tell you this is the right message. And that's all I have to tell you about it. Um, but with ZX Cambridge, they had to explain their idea and they had to find the right way. And so I was like, oh my gosh, how do I, how do, I do that? Um, how, do I, how, do I get, how do I get them to find what they think is powerful in their idea? And, and simultaneously, how do we get them to talk about it in a way that makes sense? So I started doing a bunch of research, really. I was like, um, and some of it built on what I had done when I was a Weight Watchers leader, like, okay, well, how do people process information? Like, what's that all about? And where uh, where where does information go wrong? Like, what happens? Like, what can I do to give these people an easy, relatively, way to decode and recode their idea in the language of an everyday audience? Um, and it turns out that there's one language that everybody speaks, and that is the, the, the language of story, but not once upon a time stories. That helps, but the reason why once upon a time stories work is because they're based on a structure, and it's that structure that our brains are looking for, because our brains are creating stories, again, not once upon a time stories, but we're creating stories all the time to explain why things happen, like, you know, thing x happened and y effect happened and our brain goes well that's because right we're constantly assigning roles like hero villain victim we're constantly uh, assigning motivations to people altruism selfishness whatever and our brains are doing that totally pre-consciously so i was like okay well if this is how we process information and if this is how we arrive at ideas then it what that means is that that minute where we have that kind of Archimedes in the bathtub moment, Eureka, or, you know, Isaac Newton with the apple on his head, where it's like this flash of insight. It actually isn't a flash of insight at all. It's actually the moment where all the pieces of that story that your brain is trying to build finally click in. And all of a sudden your brain goes, there it is. That's the thing that makes this make sense. I've got this question. Here's the answer because your brain has like slotted in those pieces. So, so I said to myself, Tamsin, if you can figure out what those pieces are, wouldn't that be useful? (laughs) And I was like, yes, it would, Tamsin. So let's figure out what those pieces are. So that set me on another path um, so that I got to a point I was like, okay. And there's a lot that went into it, but I was like, all right, I think that when it comes to structuring an idea, there are five pieces. There's a piece that starts the story, right? There's a piece that complicates the story. There's a piece that, that kind of clarifies the direction. There is the choice to make that, take that new direction, which is a, and that actually is where the idea actually shows up. So note that that's like step four of the story. And then there's, what does that actually look like? And then it all comes back to like, does that achieve what you're looking for in the beginning? Because that's how you end a story. Um, and so I just massaged it, tested it and tested it. I'm still so grateful to my early TEDx Cambridge speakers because they were guinea pigs, but they were the best guinea pigs, because these were academics and scientists and physicists and really tough customers where, you know, HB, you know, Harvard Business School professors, where it's like, if this didn't pass muster for them, if it didn't actually produce a better outcome for them than their traditional academic approach to explaining information, then my whole theory was dead on the vine. But it worked. And I was like, ah, I'm onto something. And so then I've just spent literally the last um, you know, I've done it on my own now. I mean, the, the, the seeds of these ideas started about eight years ago and the red thread as it exists now, even though it didn't have its name five years ago, but it started five years ago, it had its name four and a half years ago. And that's what I've been working on ever since.
0: And why write a book?
1: Uh, a lot of people kept saying, when are you going to put this in a book? That's usually a good sign that it's time to write one. Um, I didn't really want to, uh, so back to, you know, family roles and all of that. My sister was the quote unquote writer. Um, I didn't consider, I was the talker, <laughs> I was not the writer. Um, I write perfectly well. I, I, I know that I'm a good writer. It is not a pleasurable experience for me. Some people, for some folks it is, um, I hate a blank page. Uh, I hate not knowing the answer to something, which is, it turns out that was a, that was a free prize inside to quote Seth Godin of. Of the red thread approach that I came up with, is that it meant that I never had to search for an answer, and I mean I never had to search with a completely—I never had to start with a completely blank page when I wanted to generate some new piece of content. But the real reason was that there's only one of me, and um, there are more ideas than I can help with, and uh, and you know, and and it was, and it really was a way to say, listen, like I know that working with me is not a cheap prospect, like again there's only one of me. So over time, that's enabled me to to charge more for it. Um, And that's just not within the range of what a lot of people can do. But my experience working with this this approach was that I know because I have seen now people work with it for five years, that it is a skill you can learn. And I don't need to be there holding somebody's hand once they know the basics of how to do this um, and that the more they practice at it, the better they can get. So I was like, I just want to get this approach into as many people's hands as possible because these ideas are too important for them not to get out there. Like I cannot possibly help them all myself personally hands-on. So this is the next best thing that I could come up with
0: so interesting because I feel as though so many people write books now for speaking and um, everyone that I talked to said, oh, you're not going to make any money on writing a book. So the only reason to do it is if you want to charge more for speaking and I get it. But for me, I wrote my book in a similar for similar reasons to why you did, and I'm not anti-making money, like-
1: <laughs> You're I, like, no, no, I like the money. Remember, I didn't don't go- Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'd,
0: I'd like for all of you to buy my book and, you know, spend money on it. It's great. but But the reason why I wrote it was because I had a framework that I saw that my clients were using, and I love to do one-on-one coaching. And I knew that there would be others that would benefit from reading the book. It's really that simple for me. Uh, when I hear you talk, I hear, I hear something similar. Um, I want to go back to your morning routine because you mentioned, Hey, I, I stay in bed. I read for an hour. I'm curious what else you're, it doesn't have to be morning. What are the routines you have? Especially you said, I don't like writing. How did you get yourself to complete the book? What other routines or habits do you yep. leverage or do you utilize to make sure that you're living the way that you want to live?
1: I'm relentlessly pattern driven. It is borderline neuroses. And so let me just start there. Um, I am, I'm very pattern driven. Uh, It is, but it is how, and I said this even back in the days when I first joined Weight Watchers, the reason why I joined Weight Watchers is I wanted to reduce the traffic noise in my head about this thing that was taking up too much space because I wanted to think about other things. And I didn't want to be thinking about how I felt or how I, how I looked or, or what to eat all the time, like, and not feeling like I was doing the right thing. Um, It was just reducing traffic noise. So for me, all my routines, and there's a lot, Um, are just to be able to free my brain up so that I don't have to think about those things. They're like kind of on like autonomic nervous system and I can it frees up my brain to think about these awesome ideas that I work with all the time. So um, it does absolutely start with a morning routine. Uh, Morning routine is to solve the New York Times crossword puzzle every day, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post, uh, uh, read the newsletter from my local NPR station, WBUR, Um, And then to read through three, it's very precise, I know I'm neurotic, three feeds, three panel passes through my what feedly, which is an RSS combiner um, serves up to me from all the the various RSS feeds that I have collected over the years as being like awesome sources of information. So things from like, you know, that range everything from MIT's uh, Sloan Management Review, um, and also obviously HBR, Um, but to things like Eon and Psyche and long reads, and even like things like teen Vogue and bustle and like random stuff where it's just over time, I've noticed that these places surface, interesting things, um, Smithsonian, like just weird stuff. Um, and I
0: just, we're good. Okay. Okay, good.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) totally weird shit. Um, that, uh. I just love to read because I'm like, this is so, you know, I, I, I was saying to um, Jen, who is my right hand, she calls herself the and Whisperer. She's worked with, she started working with me first 15 years ago at Harvard Mar- Medical School. Uh, we, you know, and then three years ago now, she started at three, two, I don't know, forever. She came back and started working with me when I was on my own. Um, I have no idea where I was going with that. Uh, I totally lost my train of thought. Um, oh, no, I know what I was saying. It was like, I... That that I can't possibly like take in all this information and use it on my own, but I just love collecting it. Oh, I know what I was saying. Um, That it was probably a lot of this (laughs) came from, you know, as the younger child of two children that was younger than my brilliant sister and brilliant parents by you know anywhere from four to thirty-four years. Um, I always lost at Trivial Pursuit when I was a child. I always wanted to play it and I was lost at it. And it was like, I think traumatizing to me. And so now I... A, I'm a collector of what I think a lot of people would consider to be useless information, and I have just created an entire <laughs> business <laughs> around making that useless information useful to me in some way. So it's a it's a lot of reading in the morning. So that's the first thing I do. I eat the same pretty much the same breakfast every day. That's a that's a holdover from from and lunch, both are just variations on a theme. Uh, Those are both holdovers from my Weight Watchers days. Again, I don't have to think about it. So as long as I've got my oatmeal fruit nuts at at breakfast and I've got my kind of um, roasted vegetable and turkey sausage hash uh, with sourdough bread that I've made because I picked that up in the pandemic, um, then I can kind of have what I want and whatever I want to eat for dinner. And again, I don't have to think about it. I can just be, I can like like client, 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 ideas, 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 break, have my hash, great, come back, do it, do it, do it. I don't have to think about it. Um, but I pretty much wear like one like one clothing designer, um, Diane von Furstenberg, because again, I don't have to think about it. I just love her clothes, I don't have to like go anywhere. Um, You know, I, you know, I go to the same person like the same place to get my hair cut and it's a place where I can like it's, you know that there's the same like it's a it's a baby chain. Um, You know there's there's five of them around the country but they tend to be in the cities where I I am the most thanks thanks to speaking and things like that. Um, There's a lot. <laughs> I do. I want
0: to um, yeah. go back to ideas. And yes. a, As an idea guy, one of the things that I things that I've started to notice, and it, maybe it's my own stuff or it's a pattern, but when I share an idea with a friend or family member, I find that there are some people that I can go to, and when I share the idea, they will be like, "Oh, I've got an idea on how to make it better," or. Oh, I think that's, that's cool. Have you thought about this? And they'll almost think about like, how can we make this work? And then there are other people that almost always will say why it won't. Mm -hmm. Like their first response is, all right, well, this is why it already exists. Um, here's why it won't work. Here's what you're missing. And I find like the, why it won't work people often don't actually give me anything helpful other than they believe it won't work. Whereas the how it will work people often then give me some ideas to broaden my idea mm. and look into nooks and crannies. And so I have I've tend to notice, A, that if I have an idea that the why it won't work people actually think is good, then I got something there. And then B, I typically yeah. try to find those people that will add on to my idea rather than the people that will just shut it down. Have you Mm. ever thought about that? Have you ever looked at that? Has that ever come up for you? Or is this just a framework I've made up in my own silly head?
1: So I think, so I have, I have, I have thoughts on that. I I don't know that I'd have, I have the same framework, but I think the two easiest kinds of advice to give people are go do it. And that'll, and don't It's super easy. It's super easy to, to, to say you can do it and, and it's necessary. We need those people out there. We need those people, but it actually is pretty It's not, it's not that helpful
0: either, either one. Yeah.
1: I mean, mean, it can be, because if you're somebody who, I mean, because people are wired different ways. So some people really do need that outside push. They need someone to say, you can do this. Uh, And people have made wonderful careers out of that. So it's important. It is a, however, pretty easy advice to give. Just go do it. Awesome. Also really easy to go. That'll never work. Um, I like you Am much more fascinated to me, and this is related to like, like, to me, I connect this back to my liking to do the New York times crossword puzzle every day. I look at every idea like a puzzle. Um, because if someone comes to me and says, this is my idea and, and I'm like, are right. How do we, and, it, and on the surface of it, it sounds like, okay, I've heard that before. Then it becomes the puzzle for me of going, that's when I start asking questions. And what I'm looking for is how is it different? How is it strong? How is it, how is it unconventional? How is it unexpected? So that's one thing. The second thing is that I've learned through experience, both, both directed at me and, you know, hard lessons learned with giving feedback to other people that, um, and this, this also goes back to my days at Weight Watchers, people are really good at, at, at being negative about themselves. They really are, like you really don't have to help them on that. Uh, what's much, much harder is in the face of that self-doubt and that self-negativity and that and the world telling them that it's not gonna work, the, the much harder thing to do and the much more useful thing and kind of thing to do over time is to say, I see where you're going, Let's figure out how to how to get from here, where you are, to where where you're trying to be. So the kind of fee- so two things. One is um, I was taught a number of years ago a wonderful feedback structure that I I still practice to this day called plus EBI, um, uh, and the plus stands for positives, and the EBI stands for even better if. And so I really try to do this if I'm if somebody ever. Like I do some work where people are like, can you take a look at this X and give me your feedback? And the first thing I'll say, I'm like, are you sure? Because I will take this apart. Um, Like you don't understand the level at which I'm going to go. No, really. (laughs) Like, Like, here's what, here's what's missing from this. But where I always start is from the positives and that's how i try to frame everything i'm like this this piece is strong and because this thing is strong that's why we need to fix this because this piece that's awesome is not coming across um and so that this is great and it would be even better is a is a useful rubric in my own mind to kind of keep it focused on remind people that what they have is already great. And actually it's a challenge to myself. It's again, another kind of puzzle. So here's another pattern. I refused back in the times before when I could go and we would actually dress up for stuff. I will not wear, I do not own a black cocktail dress. I will not wear black uh, as a, thing. Because why? Because it's easy. And so it creates a challenge for me to have to figure out and find something else. And so the same thing is true when i don't i don't allow myself the option that this isn't a good idea like i come into every idea every idea with the belief and it has yet to be disproven that there is something in it that is unexpected powerful and different and it is always there not everybody's willing to do the work to find it and so there's been plenty of times where i'm like i get where you're trying to go this version of the idea isn't gonna get there based on my experience. Here's what you would need to do to do that. And sometimes they're like, Well, I'm not willing to do that. And I'm like, all right, I've spoken my piece. Like, that's what you hired me to do. I, I'm giving you, and you are fully entitled not to take my word for it. It's one of the reasons why I love being a consultant and rather than working in an organization. So I'm like, I don't have to stick around when you don't take my ideas. Um, but I I do believe that, I really do believe that that everybody has a great idea. And it's just that you haven't. Gone
0: deep enough yet? It, it, it reminds me of when I coach people. Like when I start with them, I believe that everybody can get to where they want to go. Mm-hmm. However, it's going to take a lot of work on their end um, to get to where they want to go. Now, I don't believe that I could be a professional basketball player um so there is a part there,
1: right <laughs> there, there are, are like realistic boundaries to some of these
0: yeah things, so. and I, I don't think the advice of like you can be anything you want to be is actually great advice either no. but I do spend a lot of time with my clients talking about what is your philosophy and for mm. me like I created my own philosophy which is the way I show up is with a commitment to being open-minded for truth so that I can articulate courageous optimism nice. and, and the reason why that courageous optimism exists is because it's my job is to show up for people courageously and optimistically, but I still also need to be open-minded for truth. And I I love that you're a truth teller to the people that you serve, because if you're not going to give them the truth, someone else will, and it may cost them dearly down the road. Yeah. So that commitment part for me is a big deal. I was just talking to a client about it this morning. My job is to be open-minded for truth, find out what's your truth, stay open-minded, and then be Courageous and articulate that courageous optimism wherever it may take us. Yeah.
1: So if you haven't already talked to Brant Mensoir, you need to. Oh my gosh, will you love him? Um, so Brant Mensoir, who wrote a book, so full disclosure, he's a client, but only after he wrote the book. So and we've just he's he's lovely. Um, but he wrote a book called Black sheep Values. Um, and everybody talks about their values and this book actually helps you figure out what they actually are. And so the reason why I calls it black sheep and I love this is because, you know, he explains this is the, the, just the kind of, you know, um, I take all the random pieces of information. I call, I put them in what I call my swipe file and I share those like two a day, every weekday. Um, and this story is the kind of thing that I wish I'd found. It's like a it's a classic swipe file content, but what he discovered was um that the generally black sheep are valued less like for by shepherds um because you can't dye their wool um but they're useful in a group right so because they'll always put a black sheep in every flock, so, so explains Brandt, because all they have to do is pay attention to the black sheep to understand the health or where what's happening with the whole flock, because A, you can spot it, but B, other than that, they don't consider themselves to be very useful. What Brandt has done is kind of flip this on its head and said, you need to find your flock of like five black sheet values, like the, the things that do not change for you, that they cannot change for you. They are what they are what determine the health of everything else around you. Um, and his book helps you find that. And, you know, he helped me find, you know, he helped get so that I have clarity, you know, it's slightly different words, but was so lovely about reading his book was that, for years prior to reading his book, I have this mantra that I developed for myself. It's very similar to your philosophy. So if, you know, if I already answered that question for myself, like my philosophy is very simple. It's be useful, be thoughtful, be passionate, be kind. So useful, thoughtful, passionate, kind. Um, and oh, by the way, the last one's the hardest. Um, when you're doing everything else, like to be also useful and kind is like a tough thing. Um, passionate, thoughtful, you can be passionate, not kind. You can be passionate, not useful. You can be thoughtful, not kind. Like, I mean, there's, there's all these things. So to me, that's a really good balance. Um, but I think you'd love, Brandt, because understand, so for the, and Brandt and I love the, you know, we've enjoyed now starting to do more work together because like, to me, everything about who you are starts with these values. And Brandt has such a great approach to doing that. But those values get manifested in your worldview, in your philosophy. Um, of ha- about how you make the connections, about what's the story you tell yourself about the way the world works. And the red thread helps you uncover that. The red thread helps you kind of, un- helps you kind of unearth and bring light to that story that you build for yourself about how the world works. And it's based on those values. It's 100% informed by that. So, you know, it, for example, you know, this kind of usefulness thing um, which translates in, into Brandt's values as, as impact. Like that's, that's important to me, um, is, you know, really just having that kind of impact, like things need to have an effect. Like that's important to me. Um, it is, it's, it it is absolutely why I go into every you know, and respect is another one, but again, that's the thoughtfulness piece, I hope, like, that's, you know, it's just, I go into every interaction and every idea with an eye towards the impact it can have, and with a respect for that potential impact, Um, and, you know, and I am dogged, And to, to finding that because to Brant's point, like, you know, and to Brant's, you know, one of my flock of five is also determination. Like I am going to stick with this until we figure it out. Um, And that's the promise that I make to my clients. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the way that my engagements are shaped is not a number of calls. It's not, it's until we get to this very specific point, until we get to one round of edits on a short form piece of content that is your red thread put to use, because that's when you actually know it works like that's when you know it works is when you can actually see it working in the world. And so useful. There you go.
0: I love that. I talk about my clients instead of positive self-talk. Let's focus on useful self-talk.
1: Yes. Oh, I love this. Yeah,
0: a lot of people focus on being positive and positive self-talk, but sometimes negativity is helpful and useful. And I think also humans are meant to feel negative. It's not, we're we're designed and we're wired for it. We're not meant to be positive all the time. So um, I think, look, I think you have more hustle than you you think. Um, And so I'm going to use that word whenever (laughs) I'm in person. Uh, That's going to be the word I think of. I'm Um,
1: determined. See, I would say like, I think hustle to me is, is a
0: it, well hustler include, hustler I, I i could see how one would go from hustle to hustler and
1: hu, hu, yeah so to me hustle is directionless like that's wow. my issue with it is that you can you can hustle and you can be expending an extraordinary amount of energy to no purpose and so that's why i would much rather be described as determined which has elements of hustle but to a purpose like so that something happens like That to me, like, so you can call me determined, (laughs) persistent, like, yes, and dogged until the cows come home, but don't like hustle to me. Like, it's just like, like it it is, it is, it is a, a potentially unnecessary expenditure of energy. And, you know, I do a lot of talking both with my clients and in the book about how, you know, one of the things that can, can reveal to you some of these aspects of your worldview or even. Brandt's black sheet values are the mantras and the proverbs that you say to yourself all the time. Um, and so if I were to, you know, one of them that a hundred percent encapsulates my thinking is that a stitch in time saves nine. I am, and you've, you've heard me talk about it. I'm trying to reduce the traffic noise. I am trying to get to as like, I want to spend the most valuable time on the most valuable things. And I don't want to waste any effort or any time on anything that isn't necessary because these ideas are too important. So you can call it a hustle. I'm just going to hear it as determined.
0: I love it. Well, the <laughs> podcast, the podcast is called intentional performers. So I'll take
1: that. Yes. Intentional performance.
0: 100%. Everything that you just mentioned is about intention and purpose. So I appreciate you. If people want to learn more about what you do, how you do it, the book, all that good stuff. Where can they go about doing that?
1: Well, the book is really everything. I honestly, because it's like me in a book. I I wrote it to be like the pocket Tamsin, (laughs) you know, to have, you know, you're kind of as if I were sitting there with you, like walking through your idea and how to explain it right with you. So I would say right now, particularly since the book is out, um, go there redthreadbook.com. That's probably easier to remember than my name. Um, I am, however, the only Tamsin Webster in the universe. So I'm super easy to find, um, as you probably found when you were doing research on me. Um, but if you want, like, if you want other things, uh, Tamsin, then tamsinwebster.com is where it all is. Uh, that's where you can sign up for my newsletter. Obviously, that's where you're going to find the book. Um, but you're also going to see, you know, the my weekly musings that are what show up in the newsletter first. But uh, yeah, all the stuff, all the products of my intentional performance, my determination, my not hustle, hustle.
0: And also social media handles are- Yes.
1: So they're all Tams and Webster except for Twitter because I like super old school on Twitter. So that was like my old AOL handle is Tamadere. So I'm a Tamadir on Twitter, which is a which is a nod to my fan of science, fi- science fiction, which is the other th- stuff that I read in the midst of all those romance novels. Um, so, you know, <laughs> autograph book to anybody who could figure out what the, what the connection is and what my, what the connection is to Tamadir and what that is a reference to.
0: Beautiful. I will not send you an <laughs> instant message over AOL instant messenger, but I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, And LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at, Brian Levinson. And then you can listen to all of these conversations, strongskills.co slash podcast. Tamsin, great to get to know you. Love what you're doing. Love what you're up to. And looking forward to many more intentional conversations down the road. Thank you for coming on.
1: Oh, such a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your
0: audience. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam.
1: I think that when it comes to structuring an idea, there are five pieces. There's a piece that starts the story, right? There's a piece that complicates the story. There's a piece that that kind of clarifies the direction. There is the choice to make that take that new direction which is a, and that actually is where the idea actually shows up so note that that's like step four of the story and then there's what does that actually look like and then it all comes back to like does that achieve what you're looking for in the beginning because that's how you end a story.